Well, we're going to continue with our Misunderstood series this morning. We're going to be in the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 22, verse 6. If you have a Bible and want to get over there, that's great. I'm also going to have uh, the passage up here on the screen for you if you're not there in your Bible. I asked my oldest daughter uh, if I could share just a little bit about the first few weeks of her life because we had kind of a tough transition into the parenting task. Uh, Our oldest daughter, when she was a baby, was not always the easiest baby. And of course, we didn't have any idea what we were doing. And so it was tough. Uh, I remember being told before we had a baby that, hey, you might not sleep a whole lot uh, in those first few weeks and months, so just prepare yourself. And I'll be honest, I remember thinking when I was told that, I remember thinking, you know, it's okay. I sometimes stayed up late in college and... uh, I know that sounds ridiculous in hindsight, but I really thought it, and I I didn't really process that there's a huge difference between staying up late or even staying up all night because you you choose to do it, and staying up all night because a small person is screaming in your ear for hours on end. Uh, my, My oldest daughter, she was somewhat colicky, and so I remember us walking through the house for hours on end. And I remember sometimes walking through the house, especially in those dark hours of the night, between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. and singing song after song after song and then running out of songs and starting my list of songs over again and thinking, I'm the only person on the planet awake right now. Everybody else is asleep, right? So, so you'd walk around with her and sing, and she would eventually uh, drift off to sleep. Now, with, with her, we also learned she had an altitude meter, so you could not sit down. If you sat down, she would cry louder. So you'd have to walk and walk and walk, and finally she'd drift off to sleep. And, and those of you who've had babies, you know you go into the crib, and you ever so slowly lower the child over into the crib, right? And you get your hands like this, and now you're stuck, right, because she's asleep. And you slowly pull those hands up and you tiptoe back to the door. And right as you get to the door, she would begin to cry again. And you'd start it over. And I just remember experiencing a bit of that that despair and frustration that I can't control anything that's happening right now. I remember saying to my wife at one point, you know what I miss? I miss just being able to, to sit quietly in the evenings and read a book. That's something that I love to do. And her response was, you know... I think for now, you just need to let that part of you die. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking, that's not nice, right? That's not a nice thing to say. Like, that's, that's me. Like, that's part of me. I don't want to die, right? I want to live. But, but there was some truth to that. And, and what I really had to uh, uh, let die was that belief that I could be in control of what somebody else does. Right, because, uh, because now, you know, she's a teenager, we have two other kids, and, and they, thank the Lord, sleep through the night pretty well. But I'll tell you what hasn't changed is the reality that we cannot control anything that they do. Right, we, we can influence, we can pray, but we can't control. And I think for for parents, that's a hard reality to come to grips with because all of us love our kids deeply and we would love it if there were reassurances and guarantees that if we do the right things as parents, if we pray the right prayers, if we tell them the right things, then they will turn out the right way. There are 
hundreds of thousands of books about parenting. Go to Amazon and type in parenting and see how many results come up. There are books about parenting from every stage of life and every angle. Parenting your toddler, parenting your newborn, parenting your elementary school kids, your teenagers, your grown kids, parenting your difficult kids. I ran across a book on Amazon as I was looking at this uh, over the course of the last week. It was, the subtitle was Parenting Your Easily Frustrated, Chronically Inflexible Child. And I thought, man, that's helpful because that's a lot of kids, maybe most kids. I just don't know how I would explain to my kids why I'm reading it, right? Yeah, you are easily frustrated and chronically inflexible. So I have to read this book. But we would love there to be guarantees. And I I think that uh, that poses a challenge to us then when we run across a passage like the one we're going to look at this morning. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Because my my guess is you, you are familiar with the passage even if you can't place the reference because you've heard it quoted. Maybe you have it on a coffee mug. Maybe it's on your wall. And I think, I think often as parents, we approach a passage like this and we say, okay, here is my promise. Here is my guarantee. Right? And yet we can get, we can get frustrated when what seems like a guarantee doesn't seem to work out like we would hope. Let me show you the passage and then we're going to dive into it for a few minutes this morning. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now what I want to look at this morning is with a passage like this, as we've done every week. How is it typically utilized? What is the way in which it's typically understood? And then why do I think that interpretation misses the mark just a little bit? I think it misses the mark. And then what does it actually mean and how can we apply it? Right? Because I think this is critical. Whether you have kids or not, I think this is critical if you don't have kids yet and you're hoping to have them someday. It's critical in thinking about how you will approach the parenting process. If you do have kids today, I think it's critical if you're in the midst of that to think about uh, what does God say about parenting. Or maybe you're in a place where you say, you know what, I'm probably not ever going to have kids. But I think this helps all of us to think, how can we pray for those who are raising kids? How can we encourage? How can we support? So I want to look at this passage for a little bit. And just like every week, what I want to do is start with how is the passage usually understood? I'm going to provide a few quotes, and then we'll talk about uh, a summary of how it's usually understood. So let me just run through a few quotes that I found online that utilize this passage and sort of illustrate how it's usually understood. Here's the first one. Child training works. You can make your children great in the sight of God and men. A properly trained child will fear God and live a wise and righteous life as an adult. Do not question this promise. It is a promise, not a possibility. If trained consistently, they will revert to their training as an adult. Believe it. Count on it. All right, so I think that what he's saying is rather self-evident. Let me go to the next quote. The way we look at Proverbs 22.6 is really a reflection of our faith in the God of the universe. As we reflect on his character, goodness, faithfulness, and love for us, we can count on him to keep our children aiming in his direction. Be encouraged today that we can bank on Proverbs 22.6 
as a promise. And then one more from somebody coming from a different perspective slightly. This was an anonymous letter written to focus on the family. This individual says this, Doesn't Proverbs 22.6 promise that kids who are raised properly by their parents will turn out all right? That's not been our experience at all. Our college-age son walked away from his faith a year ago and started engaging in some extremely destructive behaviors. Now his younger sister seems to be following in his footsteps. We are a Christian family, and we've always tried to raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Where did we go wrong? All right, so as we look at how the passage is typically understood, then I'd summarize it something like this. Parents who raise their children according to God's word have a guarantee that their children will become God-honoring adults. Parents who raise their children according to God's word have a guarantee that their children will become God-honoring adults. Now we're going to talk a little bit, like I said, about why I think this understanding of the passage misses the mark. But we're also going to talk about why I think it's a significant passage and what it does say to us. Okay, and again, I think people in the room this morning, we're probably in one of a few categories, right? It may be that you are looking forward one day to having kids. And, and as you look forward, you're either looking forward with, with fear and trepidation, right? Because you go, I don't know how to be a parent. Maybe you came from a tough background and you say, I don't know what I'm going to do. Or maybe you look forward and you go, man, man, I got this, right? You're the one that you see all of our kids at the restaurant and you go, my kids will not act that way, right? Future kids are always very well behaved, by the way. Right, that may be you, or maybe you have kids and you're right in the thick of it. You've got kids at home like I do, and you're right in the thick of trying to train them. You're praying for them. You're trying to lead them to know Jesus, and yet you struggle every day with a combination of, of both fear and guilt, right? Fear that you're not doing it right, and guilt that you've already done a lot of stuff wrong, mixed with hope. Or it may be for some in the room, and I know this is the case. That you look back because maybe your, your kids are not walking with the Lord today. And you look back and you say, where did I go wrong? What did I not say? What did I not do? What did I say? What did I do? And so, so you feel a sense of shame and loss. And here's what I'm hoping uh, by the time we get to the end of this discussion, because I realize for some, this may be the most personally sensitive passage that we look at. Here's what I'm hoping is I want to do two things. One, I want, I want to lower that sense of shame and guilt. But I also want to elevate that sense of responsibility that as parents we have influence, but we don't have control. So that's what we're going to look at this morning as we dive into Proverbs 22.6 to say we can pray, we have influence, we can trust, but results are not in our hands. So let's look at Proverbs 22.6 then for a, for a few minutes and I want to talk first about why is this usual interpretation wrong. Here's what I'd say, why does it miss the mark? I'm going to give a few reasons this morning. Okay, the first one is this, is that Proverbs are not intended to be guarantees. All right, they're not meant to be guarantees. Now, one of the things that I mentioned the last couple of weeks is this, this concept that 
we believe that the scripture is without error, right? We believe it is inerrant in what it tells us. Okay, but, but we also have to look at each section of scripture and say, what is it actually intending to say? Right, and as, as you move throughout the Bible, you're going to find different genres of literature. And so when we look at something like the Proverbs, the Proverbs are what we would call wisdom literature. And what, what I mean by wisdom literature is this, that it's wisdom, right, that is generally true, but not true in every case. And I, I think this is difficult, and I'm going to give some examples here in a couple of minutes, but especially as Americans, I think, we are accustomed to thinking in terms of guarantees, right? Because everything you buy has a money-back guarantee, right? Even if you buy apples at Walmart and you don't like them, you can get your money back, right? Many of us grew up seeing the, you know, the men's warehouse guy going, I, you'll like the way you look. I guarantee it, right? Right? What if I don't like the way I look for some reason other than his suit? Can I bring it back? Right. We are accustomed to guarantees. Right? And so I think that, that makes it difficult when we run across a passage in the scripture that, that makes a statement like this and we say, well, wait a second, isn't that a promise? Isn't it a guarantee? Here's what Proverbs are actually intended to be, is they are general statements of wisdom that might not be true in every single case. Now, I'm going to give a few examples of this type of proverb in our own culture, and then I'm going to give a few examples from the book of Proverbs to help illustrate what I'm talking about. So we have proverbs, so to speak, that are American proverbs that sort of fit this category. Let me give you just just a few. All right, here's the first one. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Right now, I, I... eat an apple, at least an apple every day. I, I, honest to goodness, I do. And yet I still get sick sometimes, right? So what do I do? Well, I sue the apple farmers of America, right? Because they made me a promise. Well, no, what do we understand? We understand this is generally, generally the case that if I eat more apples than Twinkies, I'm probably going to be healthier on average. But it's not true in every case, is it? People who eat apples still get sick. Let me give you a couple others. Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's from Benjamin Franklin, right? One of the wisest people you might be able to think of. Uh, I generally go to bed early. I generally wake up early. I'm generally healthy. I like to think of myself as wise, right? So two out of three is not terrible, okay? For some of you, you say, man, I'm, I'm none of those. And I go to bed early and wake up early. Why? Well, it's generally true that you go to bed early, you wake up early, you will generally be healthier, you will generally have more productive hours in your day, you're generally wiser, healthier, wealthier. But it's not true in every case, is it? Just a couple more. Good things come to those who wait. Sometimes, right? But if you wait too long, you might miss your opportunity because also those who hesitate are lost, right? See, I'm saying you have to know in what circumstance does this apply and in what circumstance does this not apply. It's general wisdom. One more. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? If that's true in every case, then I'll see you guys next week with a couple pictures. That's it. It's generally true. Okay, this is what Proverbs are intended to be. So let me, let me offer a few illustrations then from God's word, from the Proverbs, that I think will help make this plainer. Okay? The generous man 
will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. And again, it's generally true that God blesses generosity. You see this in the scripture, that those who are generous experience a depth of relationship with God that they would not otherwise, and that God provides for their needs. That's generally true. It's not always true. Because I think all of us could think of exceptions, that there are people who are generous and yet are not prosperous. Let me give you a couple of of others. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. I can think of all kinds of exceptions. Why is it that Hugh Hefner lived to 91 years old and Jim Elliott, this great man of God, died at 29 years old? Is this a lie? No, it's not a lie. It's a proverb. It's generally true. Generally, yes. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Why? Because following in God's way for our lives generally is going to result in better things, right? Because God has arranged the world according to his design. So if I stay free of those things that are sinful, that are destructive, that are harmful to me and others, generally, yeah, I'm going to live longer. But not in every case. One more. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I know many of you in here, and I know how skilled you are in your work. How many of you have met the king or the queen or the president? Right, what's he saying? Well, generally the person who works hard and is skilled in his work will have opportunities for honor and advancement. That's generally true, isn't it? It's not always true. Because we can all think of people who are skilled and who work hard and haven't had those opportunities. Okay, so Proverbs are not intended to be guarantees. And so when we see train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's not a a 100% guarantee. We're going to dive into that a little bit later uh, as far as what it actually is. But but suffice it to say for the moment, it's a general wisdom principle. Okay, Proverbs are not meant to be guarantees. Secondly, I think the usual interpretation misses the mark uh, because of this. The, The actual meaning of this verse isn't 100% certain. Okay, the actual meaning of this verse is not 100% certain. Now, I, I point that out not just to confuse us, all right, but to say this. We don't want to put all the weight of our understanding of parenting on this one verse. All right, there are a lot of passages in the Bible about parenting. So that when we run across one that seems a little bit uncertain, what we want to do is interpret that one in light of all of the others, right? And so I think all too often what we do is we place a lot of weight on a verse like this. But I want to show you for just a minute, the meaning of this verse is, is a little bit hard to understand. So in the, in the original language, it's written in, in Hebrew originally, here's what it says. Here's a, a good literal translation of what it says in Hebrew. Dedicate a youth to his way. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Right Now you read that and immediately you can see there's a question mark here. Uh, what does it mean by his way? His own way? God's way? Right? Dedicate a youth to his way. Now there are a few ways people understand the passage. If they understand it to be saying uh, dedicate him to his own way, they might be saying, look, if you just let a kid do whatever he wants, 
then even when he is old, he's just going to keep doing whatever he wants, right? You, you train a stinker, you're going to get a stinker as a grown-up. Other people say, no, his own way means, listen, you need to nurture the unique talents and skills of each child. And if you understand his personality, his talents, his skills, and you lead him in that way, then he will continue along the path that is best for his individual life. Right Now, the challenge with that one is this, that in the ancient world, they were not really as concerned as we are with self-actualization. Okay, so they didn't give their kids the Enneagram. They did not group them according to whether they were a beaver or an otter or whatever it is. Right? They, didn't, they didn't do that. Right? So it's, it's less likely that that's what this is saying. And then there's the traditional interpretation, which is you dedicate him to God's way, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. I, I think that's probably, probably the correct interpretation because of two reasons. This word dedicate is very intentional. So you don't dedicate somebody to go and do whatever they want to do. You dedicate them to the way that you want them to go, the way they should go. The other reason I think the traditional understanding is probably correct is because in the Proverbs in general, people who pursue a path of foolishness and wickedness, they don't get to be old. They die young. All right, so I think the traditional understanding is correct, but the reason I point out that there are different understandings of the passage is, again, I don't think we want to place a lot of weight on this verse and say, look, if you don't do it this way and do everything right, then it's your fault when your kids stray. We have to interpret a passage like this in light of what the rest of the scripture says about parenting, and we're going to do a little bit of that in a few minutes. Thirdly, I think the usual interpretation is wrong because as we look at the scripture, we also see that children are responsible for their own choices. Again, you and I as parents, we have influence. We don't have control. So I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, I'm a, I'm a Texan raised by Texans. I grew up in Texas, so did my wife, and so we love Tex-Mex. We eat Tex-Mex regularly. Once a week, uh, we make tacos for our family. At least two of my three kids don't like tacos, right? And I've lain awake at night going, where did I go wrong? What have I done? What have I not done? We've tried to give them tacos in different uh, ways, right, With, with soft shells, with hard shells, with chicken, with beef, with all kinds of toppings. We have laid the spread out for them and said, there's a thousand ways to eat these delights. Find a way you like. And yet they complain as much as we've tried to have influence. Why? They make their own choices. We have influence. We don't have control. You even see this, in fact, this concept come up in the book of Proverbs, right? You remember, what is the book of Proverbs? Well, the book of Proverbs fundamentally is is some words written by King Solomon to his son. And it's about how to live a life of wisdom and righteousness, how not to be foolish, but to be wise. Now, I want to show you the beginning of the book of Proverbs just a little bit. Proverbs chapter one. Listen to these words. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. My son, do not walk in the way with them. 
keep your feet from their path. Now, now, as I read that, that sounds like a father virtually pleading with his son. Hey, son, you're going to have opportunities to pursue the path of wickedness. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's why he wrote the whole book. So if it was as simple as, hey, I put the right input in and I get the right input out. Would Solomon need to even do this at all? To plead with him. Say, hey, you're going to grow up and you're going to have opportunity to walk away. I am telling you, make the right choices and not the wrong choices. Why? Because his son has the opportunity to make his own choices. Children are responsible on some level for their own choices. And and the older they get, the more responsible they become. Just like you and me. And so so the, the typical interpretation often misses that point. I was thinking this week about Josiah. Josiah was one of the godliest kings in the nation of Israel. And yet his son was a man named Jehoaz who was deeply wicked and idolatrous. And what's interesting though is if you go backwards the other way, Josiah's father was Amon. Amon's father was Manasseh, both of whom were two of the wickedest kings in Israel. Right? They were both idolaters and murderers. And yet Josiah chose to follow God. And yet this godly king had a deeply wicked child. Why? Because Jehoaz chose to go his way instead of God's way. So the usual interpretation I think misses the mark because it misses the responsibility that each person has before God for their choices. And then fourthly, I think it misses the mark because of this. Even God the Father has rebellious children. Even God the Father. Can you think of any father better than God? No. God is perfect. He's the perfect father. And yet I want to show you a passage as we look at the Old Testament where God talks to his children. In this case, it's to the nation of Israel. Look at the book of Hosea for just a moment. When Israel was a youth, by the way, that's the same word as we see in Proverbs 22.6 for youth. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they, that is the prophets, called them. The more they went from them, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. I bent down and fed them. I hope as you read that, you you read the heart of a heartbroken father. He says, I'm the one that fed him. I taught him to walk. I raised him so they would know me. And they ran away. If God the Father has rebellious children and he's a perfect father, I have to think that we as human parents are not immune to rebellious children. As much as we might pray, as much as we might have influence. Okay, so Proverbs 22.6 then is, is not a guarantee. So then the question is, what is it intended to say? What is Proverbs 22.6 saying to us? And I'm going to offer up what I think is, is a reasonable understanding of the passage, and then we'll dive into it for just a few minutes. What does the passage mean if it's not a guarantee? 
And we've, we've hinted at this before, but here we go. As a general principle, children raised to know and obey God will become adults who know and obey God. Right? As a general principle, and again... The key is, this is a general principle, not applicable in every case. We're going to look at this from the scripture, and then we're going to look at this with a few statistics as well this morning. Okay, as a general principle, children raised to know and obey God will become adults who know and obey God. Right? As you look throughout the scripture, there is, there is a principle that, as a parent, if you make no effort to discipline or train your kids to know God, the odds are extremely high that they will not know and obey God when they're adults, right? If you say, you know what, I'm hands off, I'm just going to let them do whatever they want to do, yes, the odds are very high. They will grow up to do whatever they want to do. We actually see an illustration of this in King David and his sons. You may remember King David, one of the godliest kings, imperfect, right, but one of the godliest kings of the nation of Israel. And yet David's own kids were rebellious. In fact, as you look at the book of 1 Kings, you see this story about one of David's sons. His name is Adonijah. Adonijah rebelled against his father. In fact, he tried to take over the kingdom. I want to show you this for just a minute. 1 Kings chapter 1. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, that was his mom, exalted himself saying, I will be king. Now look at this. His father, David, had never crossed him at any time. By asking, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man. And he was born after Absalom. Now, it points out very clearly, the writer of Kings points out to us, hey, here's why Adonijah decided to go his own way. Because David had never even tried, right? When Adonijah was growing up, David had never said, hey, buddy, don't do that. Stop that path. He just let him go his way. And, and this last sentence of the, of the verse 6, in fact, mentions he was also a handsome man born after Absalom. Why does it say that? Well, because Absalom also rebelled against his father David. And Absalom was also known as a handsome guy. If you remember the story of Absalom, he had this long, flowing, dark hair that was impressive. He cut an impressive figure. Ultimately, his hair became his downfall because it snagged in a tree and he, he hung. Right, but here's what the writer of 1 Kings says. He goes, David didn't learn his lesson the first time. Absalom rebelled. But David kept on going with this pattern of not training his kids to know and obey God. And so Adonijah rebelled. And who knows why David didn't do it. Maybe because these were talented, handsome young men. And so he says, just let them do what they want to do. So there is a general principle in Scripture that parents that do not train their kids to know and obey God will find that when their kids grow, they they will not know and obey God. Some of you parents, maybe you've had this experience of being at a playground or some public place and there's some kid out there on the playground who's just a holy terror to the other kids. He's biting them, he's punching them, he's stealing their stuff, he's destroying things. And as you go over to talk to the parent, the parent's just chuckling about it. Look at little Billy, isn't he a ball of fun and energy? And you go, no, Billy's a felon, right? He is is a toddler felon. You need to step in and do something. Because if you don't, he's headed for a rough life. Right? We do see that generally in the scripture. That's why Proverbs 19, 18 is going to say, Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. 
See, that's what happened to David. When they were young, while there was hope, he stepped back. And as a result, they grew up to make destructive choices that led to their death. Right, so we see this as a general principle. I, w- I want to share just a few statistics that back this up. I, I ran across a survey uh, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, the National Study of Youth and Religion. I want to show this to you. Just 1% of teens ages 15 to 17, raised by parents who attached little importance to religion, were highly religious in their mid to late 20s. Okay, so basically one out of a hundred kids not raised by parents who followed Jesus and knew Jesus. Just 1% of those grew up to say, you know what, I want to know and follow God. Right, so if you step back and say, you know what, I'm not going to raise them to know and obey God. Or if you say, you know what, the only interaction that we're going to have with God is, is once a week or once every couple of weeks when we come here. Or I will send them off to youth group, but you don't prioritize Jesus in your home. The statistics will say only 1% of those kids are going to grow up to know and obey God. But, but look at this next one. In contrast, 82% of children raised by parents who talked about faith at home attached great importance to their beliefs and were active in their congregations were themselves religiously active as young adults. Now, I want to point out, 82% is not 100%, is it? There's no guarantee. Almost 20% of those kids whose parents pray, whose parents model Jesus in the home, They don't grow up to attach importance to the things of God. But again, as a general principle, yes, parents, we have influence, but not control. And as you dive in, in fact, to the research, here's what it it will show us is that our kids will pay a whole lot more attention to who we are and how we follow Jesus than to what we tell them to do. Right? In fact, What we tell them to do is secondary to what they observe us doing. Are we the type of people who read God's word? Are we the type of people who share the message of Jesus in our community and around the world? Kids who see their parents prioritizing their walk with Jesus. More than once a week. More than when they just drop them off at youth group. As a general principle. Not always, but as a general principle, they absorb the reality that Jesus matters. And so Proverbs 22.6, no, it's not a promise, but a principle. When I was uh, the college pastor here at Grace, every fall, it was usually early September, I could set my watch by it. I would begin to receive calls from parents of freshmen. Usually it was moms of freshmen who had just entered into college and the call would go something like this. Hey, my son, it was usually a son, has entered into A&M and I want him to go to church, but he's not going to church regularly. Could you call him and make him come to your church? But don't tell him that I told you to call. Right, and we'd always have that conversation where I go, well, I I can't do that. You know, there's 60,000 students here. I don't know how to explain to him that I just chose him at random. (laughs) 
So I can't do it. I, I always will say, I'll tell you what I will do. If he will call me for information, I'm more than happy to give him anything he needs. And once he walks in the door, I'm more than happy to help him get connected. Right? But often at the heart of those calls, there was one of two things going on. In most cases, I think it was a parent who had prayed and had trained their kids to know Jesus. And as their kids went away to college, they're just afraid. Can I trust God with his life now? Or is there some way I can continue to control? But in a few cases, there was a situation where although the child perhaps was sent to youth group or taken to church, when you began to ask questions and to dig deeper, the reality was that Jesus wasn't prioritized in the home. And now sensing the last opportunity slipping through their fingers, they placed it on me. What does Proverbs 22.6 tell us then? Parents, you have enormous influence. Again, if we were to dive in, which we don't have time this morning, you dive into some of the, the statistical data, it's going to show nobody really has more influence, especially when they're young, on your kids than you. But you don't have control. You can't make them do anything. God has control. And so when we read a passage like Proverbs 22.6, then my, my prayer is this, that, that as parents, we will feel the weight of that responsibility of influence. But we also won't feel the corresponding shame and guilt and fear that often accrues to us as parents when we say, you know, I'm not perfect, but I tried to obey God. I tried to train Him. I prayed for Him. I tried to model Jesus. And then they make their choices. And they are accountable before God. Just as you and I are accountable before God. We are accountable for the task of training them to know and follow Jesus. They are accountable for the choices they make. And so Proverbs 22.6, again, it tells us we have influence, but not control. So what do we do with that then? Let me offer a few thoughts as we close, if this is a general principle that we want to pay attention to, then what do we do? How do we apply this to our lives and our parenting? First one is this, pray for your kids. All right, if we're saying this morning that ultimately God is the one in control, then we pray for them. Morning, noon, night, pray for them throughout the day. Pray for them that God will get a hold of their lives. And I would say this, no matter, no matter how old they are, I don't care if they're four or they're 44. Pray for them. Because as long as there's breath in their lungs, it's not too late. In fact, I'd say if you look back, if you're a parent and you're looking back and you say, you know, I didn't, I didn't do this. I would say as long as there's breath in your lungs, there's still grace and there's still hope. So you start today. And you say, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to seek to know and obey Jesus. You may not be able to get back those years, but you can begin to move ahead in a new pattern of following Jesus and praying for your kids, no matter how old they are. Secondly, follow Jesus faithfully and teach your children 
to follow Jesus faithfully. And it may be that some in this room, the place you need to begin is simply by beginning a relationship with Jesus. And it may be that you bring your kids to church, you come to church, but between Sunday and Sunday, you would acknowledge, I don't, I don't know God through Jesus Christ. And so the first step to training your kids to know and obey God is for you to know him. And the way to know him, we sang about it this morning, we've talked about it this morning, is to recognize you are a sinner, I am a sinner. We have disobeyed God, we are rebellious children, and we need forgiveness. And the way to receive that forgiveness is we trust in Jesus Christ, because Jesus died in our place. We sang about it earlier, Jesus died for our sin, he took the penalty for our sin, and then he rose again. And all who trust in Jesus Christ can have eternal life, but can know what life with him now is supposed to look like through the power of the Spirit. So if you don't know Jesus Christ and you want your kids to know him, right, the first step is, do you know him? Have you trusted in him? And then if you do, would you say that your kids see you prioritizing the things of Jesus Christ in your home? Do they see you reading his word? Do you talk about his word and what it means for their lives? Do you serve as Jesus served? Do you share the gospel so others can know Jesus Christ in your neighborhood, in your community, around the world? Do they see you with what you do and what you say, saying Jesus matters? To follow Jesus faithfully, teach your children to follow Jesus faithfully, and then, then lastly, we trust God with outcomes. We can't control outcomes but we can exercise the influence God has given us faithfully. And my hope, again, is, is that we feel that role of parent, that, it, that it's a high role, it's a powerful role, but we're not God. And so we can feel that responsibility and get rid of the fear and the guilt that often comes along with it. We say, God, I love you, I trust you, I want to follow you, I want to help my kids follow you, and then I'll trust you with their lives. Because of who you are. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your word. Father, all of us, as hard as we try to follow you, we fall short every day. There may be no task that reveals that to us more than the parenting task, in which day after day we just see our own inadequacies and inabilities so clearly. And so we rely on your grace. We ask for your grace for our kids. For those in the room who don't yet have kids, we ask that you would lead each person to to develop a relationship with you that is close and, and faithful whether they find themselves as parents one day or not. Father, I pray we would pray for one another and support one another and encourage one another and then trust in you when it comes to the decisions our children make. Father, I pray we would follow you faithfully and remember you are in control. Lord, we love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.